You're now tuned in to the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. This is episode six of series four, which means we're up to canto six in Dante's Purgatorio. Let's get on with it. Last time, we saw Dante encountering the souls of those who died violently and suddenly before they had a chance to turn from their sins, that is, from their self-centered view of the world. But but who, at the very last moment, did make this turn around, and thus, within an instant of going to hell, they were saved? That, that may not seem entirely fair, but heaven doesn't work on the grounds of fairness, but of mercy, which will do anything possible to help others. Dante described three of these souls who came up to him begging for him to tell the people back in the living world to pray for them. The canto ended with someone who called herself La Pia, humbly but mysteriously adding her few words. The new canto takes up just at that point, uh, except it doesn't. Dante gives us one of his introductory images, this time a very surprising image. He starts off showing us a game of dice just finishing, and we focus for a moment on the loser who just sits there replaying all the throws of the dice, trying to work out how he came to lose. And meanwhile, the winner, with all his winnings, moves away, surrounded by all the others, the kibitzers, I suppose, those who'd been watching the game. These people all clamor for his attention, hoping that this winner will share some of his winnings with them. And yes, he does share out some money, some for you and a little for you, and here's a few coins for you, and so on. Each one who receives money then leaves, making room for others, until eventually the winner is free from all these employing people. That's the image, and Dante applies it to himself, surrounded by all the other souls of the late repentant, all telling him who they are and asking him to tell the people back in the world to pray for them. And he promises to do what they're asking. He identifies a few of the people in this crowd, all of them having been killed in one or another of the factional strife going on in Italy at this time. Now, once back just the two of them, Dante turns to Virgil with an interesting question. He's just been hearing all these requests for prayers that will have a beneficial effect on these souls' condition, but, but this seems to contradict something Virgil had said in the Aeneid. Here's the incident. On his journey down to the underworld, Aeneas meets Palinurus, the experienced helmsman, who had been steering their ship on their journey away from the defeated Troy, and, and, and who had been swept overboard one night. Palinurus tells Aeneas that because his body still lies unburied, by the regulations of this place, he has not yet been able to cross the river Styx, which means his soul cannot yet find rest. He begs Aeneas to help him get across the Styx, n not through Aeneas's prayers, notice, but just by holding his hand and taking him on the boat with him as he, Aeneas, crosses. But he's reproved for this wish by Aeneas's guide, the Sibyl, who tells him to stop dreaming of deflecting the divine will through his prayers. Desina fata deum flecti sperara precando, if you want the original Latin. If Virgil here wrote that you can't pray to change the divine order, 
then what's the point of people praying that the souls in purgatory should skip over the divinely allotted time they have to spend here in anti-purgatory? It's a good question. Well, a good question if we take the words of Virgil's poem as expressing true doctrine about the world, which Dante most of the time does. Virgil's answer is, once again, rather complicated, but he gets out of it in two ways. First of all, he says that the characters in the Aeneid, again treating them like real people, were not praying to the true God, and then he just abandons the issue by saying that Dante will have these questions cleared up by a higher authority, by Beatrice herself, who will give him a complete answer when he meets her at the top of this mountain. As soon as he hears this, Dante's fervour becomes even stronger. On top of this mountain? Well, what are we waiting for? Let's get moving. Look, I'm, I'm not really tired anymore, and it's getting late. The sun is already behind the mountain. Yes, says Virgil, let's get moving, but, but don't expect to be getting to the top of the mountain in just this one day. We're going to be spending this night here on the lower part. But then the conversation is broken off by the sight of someone sitting there up ahead, all alone. You want the shortest path up the mountain, Virgil says. This man will be able to show us where it is. Well, maybe he can, but it doesn't look too promising as they come closer. He looks pretty self-contained and arrogant as he just stares at them as they approach. And when Virgil asks for the best way to go on, he, he does not give them an answer. He just wants to know where they originally hailed from and what their state of life was. He doesn't know that Dante is still alive because the sun is behind the mountain and so Dante is now casting no shadow. But actually he doesn't seem to care about Dante or even notice him. Virgil begins to answer, but before he can get out more than one word, and that word is Mantua, the area where he was born, this soul completely changes his attitude and jumps up with the cry, Oh, you're from Mantua, Paisano, I'm Sordello, and I'm from there too. And that's all it takes for the two of them to fall into each other's arms in a loving embrace. And here Dante the poet freezes the scene. Against the background of this embrace by the two Mantuans, crossing centuries, bound only by love of their native region, against this background, Dante launches one of the most sustained criticisms of the current state of Italian politics in the whole Divine Comedy. It's like the image on the screen frozen while a voiceover goes on about current problems. Dante addresses Italy directly. Your people are always fighting, and even the people in the same city are chomping on each other. Go look for any place in you that is at peace. You have no overall ruler taking charge, enforcing the good laws laid down long ago by the Roman Emperor Justinian. The current emperor up in Germany doesn't pay any attention to Italy, the garden of his empire, whereas he should be taking great pains to control the factionalism so there can be true peace in the area. He addresses the Emperor Albert, inviting him to come and see the various families at war with each other, among whom he mentions the Montecchi and the Capuletti, whom we know better as the Montagues and the Capulets. But come on, Albert, and see all this, and see how Rome is a desolate, abandoned city, weeping day and night for her Emperor, who stays far away. And if nothing else moves you, at least come in order to preserve your reputation. 
Then, he, he's really worked up by this point, then he turns to Jove, by which he means Christ, only Dante avoids mentioning the name Christ until he gets to the Paradiso. Oh, Jove, you suffered on the cross for us. Are you just busy somewhere else? Or maybe you have some beneficial outcome from all this, all planned in a way that we mortals simply cannot understand? And finally, he turns to his beloved Florence, shifting into bitter sarcasm. Oh, Florence, you must be really happy that none of these awful situations have anything to do with you. Oh, no, you're a place where justice is really flourishing, and everyone strives to work for the common good. Boy, are you fortunate, so rich, so peaceful, so wise. Those great ancient cultures of Athens and Sparta have nothing on you. It's so wonderful the way you keep changing your laws from one month to another, and your coins, and all the public affairs. You know, you're like a sick woman, lying on a very comfortable bed, but unable to find any comfortable position, who just keeps turning about on the bed, looking for a position that won't be so painful. And that's it. The long diatribe has finished, and so is the canto, with that image of the sick woman restless in a comfortable bed. We can break the canto into four sections. The souls gathered around Dante asking for prayers, the further discussion about prayer, the encounter with Sordello, and that fierce condemnation of the present state of Italy. The issue of prayers in the first section leads naturally to the discussion in the second section, but, but then there seems a break into something new, Another strange figure encountered on the way, someone who's not importuning Dante for prayers, mainly because he can't see a shadow and doesn't know that Dante is still alive. In fact, in this section of the canto, Dante is well into the background until the embrace between Virgil and Sordello leads him to stop the narrative and turn back to Italy for his long condemnation. The state of affairs that he is lamenting is something we've already seen plenty of in the Inferno and have just seen some consequences of in the violent deaths of most of the people we've met in this and the previous canto. So Sordello, who at first seemed not to fit into what was going on, actually becomes the occasion for looking back and venting the rage all that abuse has been creating in Dante's breast. Now, first, let's attend to that dice game which opens the canto. First of all, the realistic details. The loser who just sits there, stunned and defeated, going back over the throws of the dice, cursing himself for what he did and what he didn't do, as though that really would have made any difference. And then the crowd around the winner, N not just a crowd, but a more detailed description of how one of them walks in front, presumably walking backwards, facing the winner, getting right in his way. And another one pulls on the winner's coat from behind, and yet another is walking right next to the winner, reminding him perhaps of the favor he once did for this man. Hey, remember that time you didn't have any cash on you and I, and I paid for your drink? And the winner doesn't stop, but just keeps walking. And as he walks, he listens to each one nodding and slipping some money from his hand into the other person's hand. Each one that receives something then slips away, his place immediately taken by someone else. Now, I've never witnessed such a scene myself, but I can easily picture it, and it seems entirely convincing. A, a little bit of 14th century Italian life, 
surely repeated countless times all over the world, now brought to life in our imagination. But let's not overlook just how unexpected this image is. Here we are with our minds set on purgation of sins and the ascent up to heaven, or caught up in the plight of all these 13th century Italians and their violent deaths, and suddenly up on the screen comes this image of a crap game. If, if there's one thing we can depend on Dante for, it is these surprising effects, ensuring we keep the connection between the afterworld and our living world, and between the world Dante knew and the world we are living in. But then, startled, we have to think about what this image is doing here, and what it has to do with Dante's journey, be, besides just describing what the scene was like for Dante. Is Dante, the one still alive, the winner? If so, what's the game he's winning? Well, no, he's not a winner exactly, but like a winner, he has something that the others hope to get a piece of. What he has is the chance to go back into the world of the living and pass on the news of these souls who are now held up in purgatory and need the prayers of their family and friends, so their stay in this anti-purgatory region will be briefer, and they can start the real ascent up the mountain. Or let's look at it this way. If you win at dice and walk away with a lot of money, you can be selfish and keep it all, or you can share this windfall with others. What is the better thing to do? Well, obviously to share, since what we're aiming for in this area of grace is to turn away from selfishness and become a part of a loving community. Now, Dante's riches are the prayers he can tell the living people to offer up, or, or rather, the riches he can give these souls is his promise that he will pass on word to the others. By the way, who in this image would be the dejected loser whose description occupies the first stanza of the canto? I suppose it's those who can't be bothered to be gracious and stop and listen to each of these different souls, and can't be bothered to offer help in the way they can. We know lots of people like this, and, and here Dante is clearly showing us how such selfish action is the behavior of a loser. And there are further ramifications from this image. Is there any connection between this image of a game of chance and the discussion of prayer that follows? Is prayer like a crap game where maybe you win, maybe you lose? It all depends on the random throw of the dice. Is Palinurus the loser in this game, unable to cross over the river Styx into peace just, just because his body has been left unburied? Killed just as, after being washed overboard, he finally made it to the Italian shore? And as much as he can run over the events in his mind, he cannot change things. Aeneas, a winner, can go on over the sticks, but Palinurus can't. Is that what life, or, or afterlife, is all about? Just a random throw of the dice? So it might seem to the Virgil who wrote the Aeneid, and to all those virtuous souls in limbo, and perhaps to humanists and rationalists today, who cannot conceive of a divine presence that will alter events on earth, just because individuals' selfless intentions, that is, prayers, request this change. Well, this isn't an easy distinction to get hold of, and perhaps it can make sense to us only if we try it out and see for ourselves from the inside, after a period of years perhaps, see for ourselves what prayer is all about. 
and maybe if Dante has proved himself to us as worthy of our confidence, we will be more ready to try out what he's suggesting. I'm not sure what else there is to say about it at this point, except what Virgil says. Beatrice will explain more later on. So now we have something to look forward to. As does Dante, of course, who is immediately impatient to get to the top of the mountain where he'll finally get to see Beatrice. Not so fast, son. We're only on Canto 6, and Beatrice does not appear until Canto 30. Not that Dante, the character, is aware of this, but we are, and we've just had a little preview of what lies ahead further on our reading. There's not much to say about Sordello here. In a way, his demeanor reminds us of Farinata back in hell, rising up from the burning tomb of heretics. Farinata, who wanted to know Dante's heritage before he would say anything further. Sordello's upright stance and haughty gaze reproduce Farinata's nobility, in his case, though, marred by the flames of hell. And Sordello ignores Dante in a similar way as Farinata was ignoring Cavalcanti right there next to him. Now why Sordello here? And why, unlike the others, is he all alone? Sordello, as we see, was born in Mantua or near it, but he left that region and settled in several areas of Italy before leaving or fleeing from each one in some kind of disgrace, perhaps mostly over scandalous adulteries, finally settling in Provence, in southern France, and writing poems in Provençal rather than in his native language, and eventually fighting on the side of the French against the Italians. So there's every reason to see him having distanced himself from his native region, and yet, and yet, as we see, the one thing that thaws him is seeing this paisano, before he even knows who this is, that, that will come in the next canto, he jumps up to embrace him. This is the love for the land that resides deep within the Italians, or should reside there. Oh yes, and as I said, Sordello wrote poems in Provençal, and in one of these poems in particular he condemned eight rulers for their abuses of power. The recollection of this poem is one of the things that spark off Dante's diatribe, even fiercer than Sordello's. We should consider this diatribe now about the awful state of Italy in 1300. What's the problem in Dante's eyes? Basically, the problem is that there's no central authority. The emperor is failing in his duty to his people, especially the people in Italy, this garden of his empire. Dante's referring to Emperor Albert, who never even got around to coming to Rome to be officially crowned as the inheritor of the Roman Empire, and now the Holy Roman Empire. Not giving any attention to Italy, he's failing to enforce the laws established long ago by the Emperor Justinian. The consequences are basically twofold. First, without a central authority, the various parts of the country are divided within themselves into warring factions, so that there is a constant state of hostilities, breaking out in the skirmishes and battles whose slaughter we have seen glimpses of in the souls we've met in this canto and the previous one. The second consequence, as exemplified in Florence, is that there is not even any social or political stability. Whichever side happens to come to power changes the rules. And so even though Florence may be rich, 
Nothing is secure, which means no one can peacefully enjoy the riches. These lines, taking up almost a half of the whole canto, are very useful in giving us an overview of Italy at the turn of the 14th century, though obviously there's more one could say about the state of the land. The lines also show us more about Dante's thoughts on politics, specifically the reasons he calls for a strong emperor to exert a unifying control over the whole country, indeed the whole of Europe if possible. But is there more for us than just this historical and biographical information? If the Purgatorio offers a poetic journey into our present lives, as we live them now, trying to cleanse ourselves from our selfishness, then what can we take away from this invective? In what way do we too need an emperor to unify and stabilize our own selves to enforce the laws that already exist? Let's start with those laws that already exist. These would be, I suppose, moral laws that have been formulated long ago and have proved their worth over the ages. We could find many such laws, but perhaps what fits best are the four cardinal virtues, which we have already been shown in the first canto as the four stars shining in the sky, the first things that Dante registers as he comes up from the underworld. The four cardinal virtues, fortitude or courage, prudence or practical wisdom, justice or right proportion, and temperance or balanced living. These four attributes are not specifically religious or spiritual, but affect our civil and political actions. That's why it's an emperor, not a pope, that we need here, since Dante felt strongly that there should be a division between those civil and political matters and the spiritual matters, one under the authority of the emperor and the other under the pope. Now these four virtues can regulate and stabilize our actions, connecting us to right-living people in other times and places. In, in this, they're comparable to the Justinian laws. But how will they be enforced? Is there something in us that can act as the emperor and enforce the laws? Is this our conscience? Is Dante demanding that we should open ourselves to the workings of our conscience? And look, do we need constant reminders to do this? <laughs> Apparently so. And this won't be the last time in the Divine Comedy that Dante will shout out a reminder. We are Italy in the poem. We are Florence, chaotic and at war within ourselves. We know this. And maybe that's one more reason why, why we read books like the Divine Comedy, which can, if we let them, serve as emissaries from our internal emperor to remind us of what we know already. And literature has the power to enforce this, too, because of its ability to move our hearts and enlighten our imaginations. Maybe podcasts can do this, too. Let's hope so. In the next canto, we spend more time with Sordello, who leads Dante and Virgil to a good spot for passing the night, during which time no one can make any further progress here. Well, see you there.